This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And, and this, this is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey everyone, we're back and we're so glad that you are too. As we were preparing to record this episode, there was a pretty shocking video released in the media related to the death of a Walker County inmate. If you follow our social media pages or the Secrets True Crime podcast, you're probably familiar with Walker County as it's been a topic of discussions on numerous occasions. One of the most concerning things about Walker County is the fact that no one seems to have a true and accurate record of exactly who is among the missing and murdered. For the ones that are known, there's not always a whole lot of information available. While locals may recall what happened or stories that have been told over the years, they're not always willing to share that information out of fear they'll be the next one to turn up missing. Right. We talk about this a lot about whether that fear is real or exaggerated, but those are sentiments echoed by more than just one individual. A question we always come back to, though, is what or who could instill that level of fear into the entire community of people, let alone a county? And then the media releases a video that was preserved by Karen Kelly, a now former Walker County Sheriff officer, and as a result, she loses her job and according to her attorney, has to go into hiding out of concern for her own safety. Through Karen's actions and the efforts of Anthony's family, much-needed conversations are finally occurring. Last week, two complaints were filed in federal court on behalf of the estate of Anthony Mitchell and Karen Kelly against WCSO. The allegations in the complaint filed by the estate stem from the video surveillance recorded and released by Karen in the effort to preserve and provide the truth about Tony's final days. In response to Karen's efforts, WCSO terminated her employment. We will provide a link in the episode details to our blog where you can find links to the complaints, news articles, and also a timeline. While what was revealed last week is not the subject of today's episode, we wanted to mention it because it is important. The allegations related to the treatment and death of Anthony Mitchell 
while in the custody of the Walker County Sheriff's Office, has revealed an appalling and nearly unbelievable disregard for life. We know the statements are simply allegations at this point in time and that everyone named should be presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And that's a standard we fully believe should be upheld. However, the reprehensible actions or inactions reflected in the video surveillance and still shots by those sworn to protect and serve the community, free or incarcerated, are unconscionable. We could probably have a full-on discussion about this today, but for now, as a concerned community, we wanted to make sure that this stays in the public eye and encourage you to continue following the events as they unfold so that you can keep informed. We stand with Anthony Mitchell, his family, and also stand by Karen Kelly, the officer who was relieved of her duty due to her integrity, ethics, and bravery for preserving and reporting the absolutely inhumane treatment of Mr. Mitchell. Now it's time to take you to Covington County, which is located in south-central Alabama along the northern border of Florida's Panhandle. Our cases today are also both in the small town of Op in East Covington County, about 85 miles south of Montgomery. You know, not only not only are they both from Op, which is strange enough because it's not really that large of a city, they also happened just a few years apart. They did. Yeah, they're only two, like two years apart. Yeah. Parked on the Alabama-Florida line in southern Alabama, Covington County is located in the Gulf Coastal Plain region, which means it's mostly flat and marshy. In 2021, it was estimated to have around 37,500 residents. Only 24.59 square miles, Op is one of two cities in Covington County and has an estimated population of about 6,700. There are other towns and communities, but Andalusia and Op are apparently the only cities technically. For those who follow college football, Mike Dubose is from Op. He was a head coach for the Crimson Tide at the end of the 90s and won the SEC championship in 1999. Oh, that's pretty cool. Our first case is 17-year-old Kimberly Lauren Raymer. Kim, as she was referred to by friends and family. Her parents were divorced, and she primarily lived with her father, Kenneth Raymer. However, Kim spent a good deal of her summertime with her mom, Sue Raymer, now Infinger, in Leona, Florida, which was about 30 miles from her dad's. Kimberly was doing well in school, had lots of friends, enjoyed her activities after school, and seemed very happy. She was nearing the end of the last summer of her high school years in 1997, looking forward to being a senior at Off High School that September, and excited to attend college in Mobile after graduation. I remember getting out of school my sen- or going into my senior year that being kind of like one of those independent moments, like, oh, yeah, I'm an adult, not really an adult, but you feel like you're an adult because, you know, like you're a senior, you're top of the class, like you rule in school, and then it's out kind of spreading your own wings, and college was just exciting. Yeah. I bet she she was feeling just wonderful summertime. I agree, though. I think that she was probably just feeling like she could rule the world. On August 15th in 1997, Kim had come back from her mom's earlier in the day. She had needed to get her senior pictures and then had a game in the city's women's softball league. 
Afterwards, she hung out with some friends and then went to visit her boyfriend. With her curfew, she left her boyfriend's just a bit before midnight, only a few minutes away from her home. This was the last sighting of Kim. It was said that a neighbor may have seen her arrive home sometime just before midnight, but even at that, it was not confirmed. It did seem, in any case, that it was safe to assume she made it home that night as her car was parked out front and there were items in her room that she would have taken with her had she planned to leave. You know, things like her purse, glasses, she had contacts also, so she didn't have either with her, and keys. So it seemed maybe that she had been getting ready for bed as well. Um, Her shoes had kind of been kicked off and clothing appeared to kind of haphazardly be thrown on the floor. Um, Just kind of like one does when they're first getting ready for bed. Okay, that's weird. So no confirmed sighting after she leaves her boyfriend, except for, well, we don't know that the neighbor actually saw her make it home. That's just a, it's possible that they saw her. But her car is there, and since her car has made it home, you assume she's made it home. Right. And her things have made it inside. It's bizarre. It is a little bizarre, yeah. Her father wasn't at home that night, so when he arrived back at the house in the morning, he didn't really think too much about not seeing her. It was pretty early at 6 a.m., so she may have just been sleeping, you know. He left her a note, and he picked up his golf clubs and left to go golfing. Later that day... That kind of makes sense. He would see the car in the driveway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't be up at 6 a.m. probably on the weekend (laughs) at that age. (laughs) Um, I'm not even a teenager, and I don't get up at 6 a.m. unless I absolutely have to. Right. Well, later that day, when he was back home, Kenneth had assumed that since she wasn't in the house at that time that friends or her mom had picked her up and they had gone shopping or something. And, you know, maybe she was even staying with one of them overnight on Saturday night. He said he was always reminding her to leave a note if she went somewhere. A few years later, uh, an article from the Montgomery Advisor, uh, August 17th, 2007, quoted him as saying, she would have left a note for me. I was always reminding her to leave me a note. I even brought home a stack of note paper not long before this happened. He left notes for her on Saturday so that she would leave a note when she got home. She didn't this time, though. I wonder why he didn't just call her mom. You know, I kind of got the impression because he just seemed so um, nonchalant isn't the right word for it, but like it almost like it was normal that maybe they came and went like this a lot and that, you know, the idea of leaving the note was just kind of a courtesy thing that they agreed to that she didn't always uphold. So he just didn't really make much, you know, much of a thing of it. So by Sunday morning, now there has still been no contact with her. Kenneth did start to feel pretty uneasy and called Sue to see if Kimberly was there, which, of course, she wasn't. And they immediately start calling around to friends, and Sue headed back to Op, and then they together started reaching out further to their friends. However, many of them had already started to arrive at the house because, you know, one phone call sets, you know, a chain of reaction with teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so they were all heading that direction already for the most part. 
when Sue arrived, um, Kimberly's parents called the police. You know, they figured out that she just was not anywhere that they could think of. And so they, you know, filed a missing person report. Um, Unfortunately, when the police arrived at the house, uh, the scene had pretty much been contaminated because there were just so many people in the house trying to gather to help. And that's a, don't you think that's a pretty common thing to to have happen? Yeah, I think we hear about that quite a bit. Scenes don't get roped off Mm -hmm. or they don't get roped off in time or maybe even before the investigators are called without even realizing it, people have started walking through a crime scene. So the investigators, when they get there, have really no idea Mm -hmm. what was actually within the crime scene before other people started entering it. Exactly. So when the question though, did the boyfriend, was he a friend they called? Um, there were some reports later on that the, they didn't really know the boyfriend very well. Um, I think they knew he was there, and I think that they did end up calling him, I believe, but mm-hmm. they don't really specifically mention it in the articles. Later on, mm-hmm. they talk about talking to him and that sort of thing. So we do know that, you know, he was interviewed and that his mom, her mom and dad talked to him and that sort of thing. But at the time, they don't really mention whether they called him right over and whether he was worried, that sort of thing. So when the bedroom and house started getting a good look over, it soon became pretty evident that there were signs of a struggle rather than just a teenager's messy room. Her bed was a bit more rumpled than normal. A pillow was in an odd spot behind her headboard. Clothes were more than just strewn, strewn about, you know, like we thought originally. And there were actually pictures knocked off the wall um, in her room, like quite a few of them. And they also noticed all of a sudden that there was some in the hall as well. So it looks like... That's actually what I was going to ask about earlier was when you said things are kind of just haphazardly thrown, was it possible that somebody just threw those things in there? But um, Mm -hmm. I guess uh, that is possible since it now... Yep. And it kind of actually... I read an article um, a while back that uh, said something to the effect of you could tell that like the clothes were not just thrown about, you know, and not even just haphazardly, like if she didn't normally do that, they were just out of character for her. But like, almost like you could tell that there was some sort of a fight going on almost that like they were kind of bunched up in some Mm -hmm. places and um they actually could account for like all her shoes were there they knew all her shoes were in the room so they knew that she was barefoot when she left um all kinds of you know little things um i couldn't find a consensus on what she was wearing that night but uh, it sounded like she may have been wearing like a white t-shirt and either some cut off sweats or cut off jeans um but that was about as far as they could really confirm as to what she was actually wearing Man. So the police did gather a lot of evidence. They processed the whole scene for fingerprints and blood, you know, luminol and and all of that. Um, But the scene actually was never blocked off. So anybody could have come and gone out of that room, out of the house in general, which is too bad. I mean, I think we've heard 
that a lot too when there's a big crowd of people around mm-hmm. that they just don't ever get to, you know, protecting the scene, I guess, just so to say. Um, they Did they get blood? They implied that they actually did. Um, again, didn't specifically say that. Uh, later on, they mentioned that they had evidence, you know, that they were processing, but again, didn't stay, say what that evidence was. So I'm kind of thinking that they may actually have DNA, but, um, you know, back then they didn't have good testing. So I'm kind of curious if maybe they're in process of doing that now. Yeah, I and mean, they could even... If they had fingerprints that weren't identified, it'd probably be a good idea to rerun those. Mm-hmm. Yep. They did actually um, gather up the phone logs for the house phone. And it did seem that one of the things that gave them kind of a indication of what the person was doing while they were there, um, although it's still kind of curious, is that they seemed to make several phone calls while they were there. And they determined it really couldn't have been Kimberly because she didn't know any, I mean, they didn't know any of those phone numbers, and a lot of them were out of state to Florida. The people that she might know in Florida would have been known to Sue, and Sue didn't state that she knew any of those phone numbers. They actually haven't elaborated a lot on IDing them, so that also may be a part of the evidence that they're holding back. Who makes a phone call from a crime scene? Don't know. Using the house phone. Yeah, and not just one, like several phone calls. It was very odd. To me, it kind of makes me wonder if it doesn't mean that somebody that they knew, because maybe it wasn't so odd. You know, they thought maybe it wouldn't be odd that the phone calls were made because of who it was. Maybe they weren't smart enough to realize that, you know, these calls in the middle of the night, (laughs) the night that their daughter disappears might be odd, but... Yeah, I would definitely venture to say they weren't very smart. (laughs) But then again, here we are. So they have gotten away with it for this long. I know. Sometimes I think people get have dumb luck, to be honest. Officially, it didn't look like anybody broke into the house. Um, This is another kind of clue that maybe Kimberly may have known who it was. Um, Even if, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it was somebody she didn't care for but she might not have like stopped them from coming in the house originally sue mentioned in a september 13th 22 interview with a podcast called crack house chronicles that Hmm. she i know a name i'm gonna have to find out what that name means (laughs) she noticed that the door under the carport to the kitchen which they always use seemed to be slightly askew she said quote i could see a light you know From the doorknob up, I could see a little light coming through. And another person at the house at the time noticed that as well, almost at the same time. And it wasn't like it was really damaged. It just looked like it was different than it had in the past, almost as if somebody had pressed really hard on the door and it kind of warped it slightly. I wonder if it was one of those things where a lot of times you know certain door handles you have to like wiggle it and push like the door because of swelling from the weather or whatever, Whatever, you know, it gets stuck and you have to push it. So it, maybe they knew one, like either did that door get stuck? Mm -hmm. Did it have a tendency to get stuck and you had to put a little more force into it? And maybe somebody put a little too much force or it didn't look like anybody broke in because they knew that was a 
solid way in or was him trying to keep somebody out yeah and they were trying to push in you know Mm -hmm. um because another thing that i was thinking was she got she left a little before midnight to come home before a curfew so were these whoever waiting we don't know whether it was one two three people um were they waiting for her when she got there? They come in after, like, were they hiding out in the house? Right. Um, I'd like to know what time the phone calls were made. I mean, were they just hanging out using their phone and like watching TV? Yeah. Um, kind of makes you wonder. Yeah. Maybe she caught them off guard. That's um, very well could be. Yeah. But that's interesting because that may that being in the garage or in the carport. I wonder, is it a, was it a closed off carport? Uh, it didn't or was sound, it kind of like an open? Yeah, it didn't sound like it. They didn't have pictures of it, but the way she was talking, it sounded like that was just kind of like everybody kind of went to that door. So I yeah. would imagine it wasn't closed off. I was just wondering if maybe neighbors could have seen. Uh, maybe normally, maybe during the day, but I wonder if it was yeah. maybe dark, you know, at night. Yeah. So. The local police and sheriff's office, Alabama SBI, and the FBI all participated in the investigation, primarily led by the FBI due to the possibility of the crime actually maybe happening over state lines. They were pretty close to the Florida border, and you know they weren't sure, uh, based on the phone calls, if you know somebody actually came from from Florida, whether they may have taken her there, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, The FBI also posted a $20,000 reward and an additional $5,000 was granted by the governor's office. Tips did come in, quite a few. Uh, They said that there was hundreds of searches over the years covering land and water sources. So they did at least have a lot of um, leads and searches. It just didn't seem to lead anywhere. Seemingly the first promising lead came in mid-May of 1998, so just the next year after she had disappeared. She, The tip was that she would be found in a 35-foot water-filled basin in Leona, Florida called Steep Hole. This town, Leona, of course, was where her mother was from, so it was, you know, I guess maybe something that you would think had to do with the fact that her mom did live there, that maybe the tip came through there. Beginning on Kimberly's birthday on May 18th, they had a professional set of divers um, searching there for about three days. They had a cadaver dog present also, who actually appeared to have alerted, but the divers didn't find her or anything, nothing, none of her possessions, anything. And as far as they know, nothing of hers was actually missing. No. um, She... I think that they also said that she was wearing some jewelry. So I think that was the one thing that they were really kind of watching for because it might have been unique to her. Um, Might have come up on like metal detectors or anything like that as well, or scans. Another tip came in a few years later in April of 2006, leading them to search a sinkhole near Ponce de Leon, roughly 16 miles from Leona. It also required divers to search for several days, but once again, unfortunately, nothing was found. And another tip actually came in beginning in March of 2015, several years later. 
that she might have been found in a well outside of town off Coffee County Road. I think it was 412. Eight hours of moving massive amounts of earth from the well site led again once to another dead end. Can you imagine moving all of that for a well, you know, to get to the bottom of a well? That's a lot. You know, there was that case over in um, Georgia where a guy told them that they could find evidence in the bottom of a well and they excavated it. And sure enough, the weapon and the T-shirt and shoes, I think, were in that well. So sometimes it's so worth it. But As we have often heard in these cases where there's been so many years since a child has disappeared, sadly, sometimes parents haven't lived to see their child brought home. Kim's dad unfortunately passed away in 2010, never seeing her disappearance solved. The Dothan Eagle interviewed Kenneth in March of 2004, before his passing, and quoted him, There's not a day that passes that I don't think about something Kim said, or look at her photograph and get misty. She knows I love her. I know she's in heaven. In my heart, I know she's in heaven. And it may be then that I see her. God, that'll break your heart. I know. I read that and I was, you know, how true, unfortunately, it was. But maybe Mm. between the two of them, they can watch over the rest of the family and maybe they'll find her. Yeah. Over the years, Kimberly's mom has had a strong suspicion that a past family friend is who she believes killed her daughter. She wouldn't publicly state this until actually last fall in 2022. She shared her thoughts on the same podcast I mentioned earlier, Crack House Chronicles. I won't name the person here because he has not been formally named a person of interest in public. And so, you know, I don't want to do that until we have, you know, confirmed from law enforcement, really. But this person apparently was essentially the only person out of many people that were interviewed and um, many that actually took polygraphs. He was the only one that didn't cooperate. Okay. Well, when you don't cooperate with investigation, that kind of sends red flags up. It does. Yeah. It makes me wonder, you know, did they not have enough? I mean, obviously they didn't have enough evidence because he's not in jail and we don't know who he is yet. But, you know, it kind of makes you wonder what it is that's missing that they can actually, you know, try to get that that kind of evidence to bring forth his name. I know I never understand not cooperating with an investigation if you're innocent because the truth doesn't change. I know. It seems like it's so much harder. It's definitely harder, I think, to keep up a lie than it is to keep up the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And then it like you're not flying under the radar whenever you decide, nope, not going to be cooperative. If anything, it's like waving a big bullseye around mm-hmm. yeah i kind of granted that there's a right to that you have the right to counsel and to not mm-hmm. i yeah. get it and you know they always say don't take polygraph <laughs> so you know you can yeah take or leave that as you wish but you know i'm not sure if i would do a polygraph i i still kind of think no i probably wouldn't because every true crime story i ever have heard of it's always been you know people that take polygraphs get themselves in trouble 
<laughs> so. Oh, I can't even I can't even give an interview without my <laughs> without my heart rate and things jumping up. I know. Like, I get so nervous and anxious. So yeah. I'm not even like part of me wants to do a polygraph one day just to see what it's like. Yeah. Um <laughs> but I feel like I would fail out of the just sheer nerves and anxiety. Yeah. And probably start telling things that were completely irrelevant about things. Like, yes, I ate that cake my mama baked when I was five years old and lied about it. You know, <laughs> actually, I didn't do that, but my brother did. I mean, we know from a lot of wrongful convictions, too, that, you know, that kind of stuff does happen. Or they're they're feeling guilty about something that's even completely unrelated, but maybe they feel they're get caught, you know, somehow on. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I'm certainly not a polygraph expert, so I don't know how easy it is to discern one thing from another, but I don't know. I, I don't know that I would do one. But Maybe we can get a polygraph expert to come on and talk to us. Oh, that would be neat. I that would love cool. that. It would be interesting to hear their perspective. Yeah. Well, prior to all this, in July of 2021, a grand jury actually met. They reviewed all the information from the case um, and revealed pretty much that there was actually progress in the case, but no one still has publicly named a suspect. The DA, Walt Merrill, gave a detailed statement about the grand jury report to the press, explaining that they couldn't really reveal the details due to the ongoing investigation, but they did share that they have hired a highly honored retired chief detective um, that they made an investigator on the case, Dennis Haley. As quoted in the Andalusia Star News, he also made the following statement. Per the grand jury's instructions, we will reconvene and present the next phase of the evidence we have discovered in the near future. I am confident that we will find justice for Kimberly Raymer. We will not rest until we do. It's been two and a half years since the grand jury, and we haven't heard an update yet. Kimberly has been missing for over 25 years, and her family just wants Kimberly to come home and be put to rest. That's a long time. Two and a half years seems like a long time, too. I was thinking so, too. I'm kind of wondering what's holding it up. Um, I guess we've heard other grand juries that we thought we were going to hear from that we essentially never heard from again. So I guess maybe, you know, patience, oh, but. I don't really understand the next phase, but maybe mm-hmm. that's just because. I know a lot of grand jury proceedings are held in secret anyway, and they don't make a lot of that public. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I get it because you don't, if an indictment doesn't come down, you don't want to sully somebody's good name by having it out there that they were even being discussed Mm -hmm. in connection to an indictment, potential indictment. You never know. Maybe something somebody hears in the podcast today will help spark something and maybe, you know, the investigation will start pushing forward again. It'd be nice if we could help with that or just anybody can get that information to the right people and bring Kimberly home. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Kimberly Raymer, please contact the FBI 
at 251-438-3674 or the Op Police Department at 334-493-4511. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Over 23 years ago, James Anthony Reynolds, also known as AMP, went out with a group of friends for an evening of drinking, dancing, and laughing. But in the early morning hours of May 8, 1999, things took a tragic turn when the group of six vanished on their way home. The search for the missing six captured attention locally and nationwide for months. And the mystery surrounding their disappearance only intensified when the Chevy Caprice the group had been traveling in was discovered submerged in Pea River with the remains of only five of the six friends still inside. Oh. Yeah, isn't that strange? That was really odd that only five of them were there. I think that was my first, when I first read the article, that was my response. Oh, I mean, you know, you're thinking of a car traveling along with six guys in the car. I mean, that's kind of a tight fit anyway. Yeah. I'm curious as to how that happened. My grandmother used to have a Chevy Caprice. Those are big cars, so it's pretty spacious on the inside. But that's oh, yeah. still a lot of people to have in a car. Yeah, I agree. Um, So in May of 1999, Lamar Jr. Stackhouse was the proud new owner of a 1986 Burgundy Chevrolet Caprice. Well, new to him, because we're talking about 1999 and it was in 1986. Mm. But it was loaded with top-of-the-line stereo equipment. I think I even saw that it had um, gold rims on it, and he was ready to show it off. He had stopped by his father's home to let him see the car because he just purchased it, I think, a few weeks prior. So he stopped by his dad's before getting ready to head out for the evening with friends. It's a little unclear exactly what day this occurred. Some reports indicate that Stackhouse stopped by his father's on Friday, and that would have been May 7th. Then other reports state the group went out on May 8th and vanished on in the early morning hours of May 9th. So it's a little bit unclear, but what is clear is that it, this happened between May 7th and May 9th. They either went out Friday night and vanished the early morning hours of Saturday, or they went out Saturday night and vanished the early morning hours of Sunday. Okay. When I say that the articles are a little confusing, literally one article had two conflicting dates in the same article. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. So around 9 p.m. that evening, Tamara... Monique Ward dropped her child off with a relative in Enterprise and met up with Angela Roberts Young, Eula Jossett Lee, and Valerie Jones McCoy at Lee's apartment in Enterprise. Around 11 p.m., the four women set out for Stackhouse's home in Enterprise, where they were later joined by Amp Reynolds. At 11.50 p.m., Ward used Stackhouse's phone to call her relative and check in on her child. According to the relative, 
Ward planned to spend the night with McCoy and pick up her child the following morning. According to early media reports, the group of six arrived at the Hideaway Club in Op around 1.15 a.m. on May 8th. They paid their cover charge and joined the crowd inside. Witnesses that were also at the club claimed that the group appeared to be having a really good time. They were drinking, dancing, cutting up, laughing. And then around 3 a.m., Larry Edwards, who they called Mr. and was the security for the club, began ushering people out of the club because it was closing time. It's 3 a.m. So he tells the Birmingham News that he could hear um, an engine being revved up outside. So he looks outside and he can see a visibly drunk stack house behind the wheel of his Chevy Caprice. Ooh, that's bad news. It is bad news. And so Edwards claims that he tells Stackhouse he better let someone else drive that car and that one of the women in the group traded places with Stackhouse. Authorities believe that may have been Tamara Ward, but there's really no way to know that for sure. And I don't think it's ever been confirmed that any other witnesses were able to verify that. And the group left the hideaway club a little after 3 a.m., headed to an unknown destination. Hmm. That's a group of people that I'm not sure should be in a car. (laughs) So on May 10th, when none of the group had arrived back home, they were reported missing. I'm not really sure who reported them missing. Um, Stackhouse's dad tells some of the media outlets that he and Stackhouse had plans to go to a sporting event and that he had been trying to call his cell phone, which is odd because we talk about that there really aren't cell phones during this time, but I guess he had one, but he wasn't getting an answer. Um, Imagine, well, uh, Tamara, uh, she had a child, right? So only two of them didn't have children. Eula Lee had two children, Valerie McCoy had five children. Tamara Ward had two children. An aunt had a child. But yeah, supposedly Tamara Ward was going to be picking up her child the next morning. Mm-hmm. Right. So somebody reports them missing. One of the family members recognizes they're not back like they should be and reports them missing to the Enterprise Police Department, I'm assuming, because it's really not even clear who they reported them missing to, but it seems like Enterprise Police Department took the lead in the investigation. They were the ones that were making most of the comments, so I think that's probably who did the initial um, investigation. They're not who currently has it, though. Yeah, that makes sense. Authorities began searching a 45-mile radius, including aerial searches, but found nothing. I'm assuming the 45-mile radius also went from the Hideaway Club where they were last seen. So the logical assumption would have been that the group would have been headed back to Enterprise because it was 3 a.m. and they would have been going back to Stackhouse's home because that's where everyone had met up. And to get there, they would have had to cross Pea River and a few other small creeks. So, cadaver dogs and search crews were dispersed to the waterways for the first time on June 3rd. Really? Only June 3rd? Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yep. 
almost a month later. That's a long time to wait. It is. And this is probably part of the reason why there was kind of a big deal or about the investigation. I'm not saying the Enterprise didn't handle the investigation appropriately. I don't know whether or not they handled the investigation appropriately. Um, but there was a representative from the NAACP that came in and requested that the FBI come in to handle the investigation because they felt like the missing six weren't getting the attention that they should get. Uh And when you consider that waterways and things like that weren't searched until almost a month later, I can understand why one would think that. I agree. I mean, it's not like even there was just one person missing and they kind of neglected the investigation, but there were six people missing. Six people. So three months in with little to no leads, investigators actually sought the help from a TV show most of us have at least heard about if we haven't watched it, America's Most Wanted. Enterprise investigator Byron Kaler told the AP, we really want to get this shown on America's Most Wanted because they get the best results. If we can't get it on that, we'll look at some other show. But I'm not really sure you want to hinge your investigation on a TV show. Yeah, I mean, it does help get the information out. But yeah, I wouldn't I mean, I think, say let's wait for the show, you know, type of a thing. Hmm. And, but maybe, and maybe that's one of the internet wasn't a big thing. Social media wasn't around in the late '90s, so True. shows yeah. like this were the social media. They really were. Yeah, I know. I watched Funny them all. <laughs> just based on the information that the investigators had. They stated they had no reason to believe foul play was involved in the disappearance of the missing six. Despite that, they convinced the then governor, Don Siegelman, to offer a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest if foul play was involved. Okay. That's weird. It is weird. (laughs) Because... I we mean, submitted. If they, if they don't think there's foul play, then why even suggest that there might be if you are pretty certain? Yeah. Uh, because they can word it to like the whereabouts. Yeah. To, if somebody just saw a wreck happen. Yeah. You know, or something like that, they could have worded it differently. But different. that <laughs> is weird. Yeah. And we've helped families um, go through the request for a proclamation on the governor's website to try to get a reward issued. And as far as I know, none of them have actually heard back. But to make it even stranger, on September 11th, they increased that reward to $20,000. Oh, my heavens. Wow. I mean, not to say that it isn't worth putting a missing person's reward out there because, you know, we still want to bring them in and somebody can bring them in, then obviously it's worth that probably, but... But the problem is now that it's hinged on if foul play was involved. Yeah. You can't just helping find a missing person isn't going to get you the reward money. Mm -mm. You only get the reward money if foul play was involved. Yeah. But does that mean that they really think foul play was involved? Seems like it would be, but. That's just strange wording to me. 
maybe we just haven't looked far enough back, but I don't think I've ever seen something written that way. As usual, rumors circulated about what could have become to the missing six. And earlier press reports seemed to hone in on one particular rumor that the disappearance was drug-related. Stackhouse had an extensive criminal history and had been convicted of dealing cocaine. He'd previously served two years in prison before being released on a five-year probation in 1995. He'd actually requested an earlier release because he'd went through a drug program while he was in prison and claimed that he had turned his life around. His early release request was denied, but the same year that it was denied, he ended up getting out um, of prison on the five-year probation, which kind of seemed to defeat the purpose of denying his request. Yeah, it does. (laughs) But according to the Mobile Press Register, those good intentions kind of fell off once he got out. Um, He was repeatedly arrested for various charges over the next four years, including drinking and driving, possession of cocaine, and selling cocaine to undercover agents. They also reported that Coffee County court records indicated Stackhouse told authorities his drug supplier was a Jamaican who resided in Palm Beach, Florida, and that Stackhouse had offered to set him up. Apparently, they asked... um, Enterprise Police Department about this because one of Stackhouse's cocaine charges had been dismissed at the request of Enterprise Police Department, but Detective Kaler had declined to comment on whether Stackhouse was a police informant. I was just going to say, that sounds like an informant to me. Well, of course they're not going to confirm that. Yeah, I guess they can't, right? Um, But it does lend some credibility to the theory Because he also had, he was also due in court a month after his disappearance on two cocaine cell charges. Well, that seems kind of coincidental. Yeah, like he disappears a month before he's due in court on these charges. Amp also had a criminal record that included drinking and driving, possession of a controlled substance, and leaving the scene of an accident. According to reports, at the time of his disappearance, he was also on probation for selling cocaine at Enterprise. Hmm. I don't know if that's how the two of them knew each other. Um, yeah, they almost like they ran in the same circles somehow. Or, it, yeah. It, yeah, it's possible. Amp was actually from Webb, Alabama, which was which is in Houston County. Um, so he wasn't technically from enterprise maybe he had moved there i'm not really sure but you would assume they would know each other somehow and this could have been how but considering their history that would obviously fuel rumors that the disappearance would have been related to some drug connection yeah it sounds like it to me i mean it sounds plausible to me that that would be the case Definitely. But the problem it with be this, understandable, yeah. The problem with that, though, is that there's six people missing and a vehicle. They've always said there's nothing to indicate foul play, but they also said they weren't ruling it out. So when you think about it and the weird wording with the reward and everything, it almost makes you wonder: is there was there a little bit more to it that maybe they weren't necessarily wanting to put out? to the public until 
they could get evidence related to it. Right. Yeah. Not long after the reward increased, investigators caught a break in the search. The summer drought had caused a significant decrease in the water levels of Pea River, and divers were able to locate stack houses, Chevrolet Caprice, upside down, just off a sandbar about 50 feet away from Ballard Bridge on Alabama 134 in the, I'm probably going to mess this up, Eno community. I've never heard of that, so I apologize if anybody lives there and I did not say it right. It's only eight miles away from where they were last seen, and it's located between Op and Enterprise, so it would have been on the way home. Oh, yeah. This was also an area that had been searched twice previously. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's interesting. I guess they couldn't not find it if the water levels had dropped. Apparently, the water level at the time that it was searched initially was around 20 feet. Mm-hmm. And then when it decreased, it dropped down to about 10 feet. So, I mean, that does make a difference. Yeah. But the crazy thing about this is they had searched the area twice. Authorities said they had found no wreckage or debris along the road or embankments, no skid marks, no damage to the bridge, and no tire treads in the dirt. Stackhouse's father, uh, Woodrow Stackhouse, claimed he had searched that area back in May, and he did find tire tracks near the edge of the water and had reported it to the authorities. But he did agree that he had seen no skid marks or any kind of trees with any kind of markings indicating there had been some sort of accident. And he thought maybe someone had actually rolled the car into the water. So regardless, no resistance to the car going in the water, but just aren't sure how it got there. Right. The investigators said the damage to the car, because there was damage, the it front windshield and the driver window, those are missing based on the pictures. And then based on some content in the article, at least the passenger side window was gone. I'm not sure about the other windows. I can't see like the back windows, but damage from the car led investigators to believe that whoever was driving the car that night when they left the highway club i guess there's a curve before the bridge and that whoever was driving didn't see the curve before the bridge and ran off the highway and down a steep embankment into the river well that would make sense i mean if but the car's kind of flipped. Turn, but yeah, the tr- the flip thing gets me though. Yeah, it does. Because you would think that's almost like they rolled down a hill. Mm-hmm. Like they lost control. But you would think there would have been some broken trees or something. But maybe I need to go for a Google Drive down the road to see what it looks like. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Keeley Rodney. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, And I guess the area was obviously fairly dangerous because shortly after the car was discovered, Governor Siegelman announced um, they would be replacing that bridge. The bridge that was there at the time was too narrow and not up to modern standards. And the Birmingham News reported that four people had died previously in crashes on that bridge. I'm assuming that it's one of those narrow roads that's not well lit pretty curvy um and in a flat 
area when it's dark like that, it, you won't even see those curves until you get up onto them. So I can understand why they would think it would have just been an accident and they would have just went off the embankment. Um, mm-hmm. But it does seem strange that the car was upside down. Yeah. And they were drinking. Yeah. So you would think that losing control would have been more plausible, mm-hmm. which would make you think. I mean, the, you can tell there's trees around this area in yeah. the picture. So it's not wide open. Um, there's no skid marks, so they didn't hit the brakes. Um, so did they go airborne? And I don't know. How, I mean, I don't know how high up the embankment was. Um, mm-hmm. um, it does look like there was a hill there. There's a picture kind of of um, the investigators standing up on this hill when they're winching the mm-hmm. vehicle out of the muddy water. Um, and you can tell that it's there's an incline there. But I don't know what the exact height. That might be something to look into. I mean, if they so had maybe it, some momentum going into the water and yeah. the water was high. And it was 20 feet. It was high. The water was high. Mm-hmm. It could have pushed it that far. Then it, cause it looks kind of like it was between the bank and there's a sandbar and like maybe it got stuck between the two. Mm. Yeah. One article mentioned that there were alligators in the water, which isn't surprising. There's alligators all over here. I didn't really think about that. <laughs> yeah. But the windows were all busted. Yeah. So it had to make impact with something besides the water, right? I would think so. Because you would think that if the windows, if the the door windows, like, were rolled down already, yeah, they, they would have just calmed out mm-hmm. if yeah. they were already down. You so would think, yeah. the fact that they're open and nobody gets out makes you think that they probably weren't down. Hmm. A lot of ifs, huh? Yeah, that's actually, now my brain's <laughs> on this. It was initially believed that the remains of all six were still inside the vehicle. But forensic experts were only able to identify five of the six friends and the remains that were recovered. Investigators stated they did not believe the amp would have floated out of the window and down the river. The remains are inside of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So... One would assume that would be unlikely to occur because if that was possible, why wouldn't other people have floated out? Right. He wasn't really a small guy either. He was six one, about 180 pounds. So it seems like that would have been kind of hard for him to float out of a window. Yeah. Intentionally get out of a window, sure, but... um if everybody else was still in the car, it seems like that would be unlikely. Agreed. And I think probably what really kind of sends that home is the fact that forensic experts could literally find no evidence that AMP had been in that vehicle when it entered the river. Mm, okay. So if that's the case, what happened to AMP? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, because there were witnesses who said he got in that vehicle. Authorities had planned to re-interview the witnesses who said they saw him getting in the car with the group while also continuing to search the area where the car was found. 
But still a month after discovering the car and the remains of Stackhouse, Lee, Ward, Young, and McCoy, investigators stood by their opinion that there was nothing indicating foul play was involved and that they believed the car plunging into the river was just a tragic accident. The physical examination of the remains recovered showed no evidence of trauma, such as bullet holes or stab wounds. And in July of 2000, authorities officially called off the search for AMP. So they're just assuming that whether it was likely or not that he did probably just float out the, the door and gave up? Reporter asked, did they think AMP was alive? And they said they wouldn't speculate. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. So is the official... Is the case officially closed or? Nope. He is still listed in name in the NamUs and Aaliyah databases as an involuntary missing person. Wow. You know, it just blows my mind because they searched this river. Well, obviously they searched it for a little while. Um, but I think they said divers went down on three separate occasions collecting remains. Because there were remains in the car, but some had also fallen out um so they continued going back down Mm, yeah but that almost seems like maybe the water current wasn't quite as fast as what you would think it would be or it could be different at different times of the year though too maybe and maybe they got pushed lower you know yeah the sandbars there so maybe it kind of formed a barrier Mm. but none of that stuff that none of the remains that they collected matched up with him I have a question. Well, no, this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory, (laughs) but, you know, it makes me wonder if one of those guys is a stack house. They thought possibly could have been an informant. I kind of wonder if um, Amp maybe was, and that's why we can't find him. Oh, that he was an informant? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he's been hidden away or or hidden away in a not-so-nice way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, as much as, like, WITSEC is good because it protects people at the same time, I wish there was a way you could let families know without yeah. letting them know, you know? Exactly, yeah. I, I know you there's know, You get it because you, I get you're the protecting point. the families, but, yeah. It is. But at the, yeah. that's hard. <laughs> and not I'm knowing, sure, you know, that's and, probably not the case. And, and, but. and uh, yeah, and that's like, a, that's a far stretch. You know, that's just an assumption. We have no idea that that's actually the case. But it's just weird that six people leave, six people disappear, but only five are found. And there's no evidence that he was ever in the car. You have this strange damage to the car. The windows are missing. If they were broken on impact, when the car hit the water, if the windows were already broken, wouldn't somebody have tried to get out? That was my big thing, as you would think. Now, you know, again, windows being broken, we have no idea really what they tried to do. I would be very interested to find out how they just determined that he wasn't in the car. Because I'm thinking, you know, a lot of guys, they carry nothing with them. They might have keys with them in their pocket and a wallet. So what makes them decide that he wasn't there? 
I mean, if everything was in his pockets and he left out the window somehow, I mean, again, far stretch that he could have, but we don't know that. I don't know where that river, I haven't looked at it to see where it washes out at or where mm-hmm. it ends up at, but I would assume they checked all of that. You would that think, they, yeah. you know, followed it down. Or heaven forbid, uh, um, I mean, I, this is a gruesome thing to say, but, you know, and, we talked about alligators. Mm, yep. So that was part of why I mentioned that. Now, there's a comment in the article where they have, are discussing that they officially called off the search, and Amp's father comments that he thinks they'll find Amp whenever they rebuild the bridge. But that's been a long time, so I'm assuming that bridge has been rebuilt and he wasn't found. So, yeah, it's just weird. Uh, this is definitely a mystery. Um, it is. You know, it, it all is. disappearances are, but this is kind of a puzzle, so to say. Yeah. 20 years later, the location of James Anthony Amp Reynolds remains unknown, and he continues to be in the NamUs and Aaliyah databases as an active, involuntary missing person. If you or someone you know has any information related to the whereabouts of Amp Reynolds or what occurred in the early morning hours of May 8th or May 9th, 1999, please call the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation at 800-228-7688 or submit an anonymous tip on their website. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.